0: Okay, so what are we doing uh, this summer seminar? We sent out this survey uh, with with lots of suggested questions, and we opened it up to feedback from each of you. And overwhelmingly, like, the the unscripted feedback from you was like, I just want to know the Bible. (laughs) Like, I need to know more about the Bible. Uh, Some exact quotes were, I want to better understand the context of the Bible. Somebody said, I want to know how to read my Bible. Someone said, I want to know how to understand Israel. Like, that's, you know, there's some current stuff in the news happening right That how do I understand how I should relate to the nation of Israel as a Christian, which is a big part of the, of the story of the Bible. And so anyway, as we listened to your feedback, it was just, um, it was overwhelming That people like, I just want to know the story, like the big picture of the Bible. I, I struggle to understand it. And all of us, I mean, the, the Bible is written a long, long time ago and has some really strange parts. <laughs> Anytime you tried to, if you've ever tried to like to read through the Bible program, Anybody get stuck in Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you're like, what in the world's going on here? Now we're doing Esther and, you know, what in the world's going on there? The Bible's hard to understand. And, and, and so it's not, like a, it's not like a weakness or a shame to be like, hey, I just, I just want to know the big picture and the big story of the Bible. Um, and he, honestly, uh, we, we also, you know, put down there some individual topics and kind of some hot button issues, if you will, for the church. And we love to talk about those things. But it seems like getting the, the bigger picture vantage point um, gives you a lens through which to see everything else. Does that make sense? That's how I always talk about when I went to seminary. I, I thought I would go to seminary and learn, like, the individual books of the Bible, which we did. Like, obviously, we went through some of that stuff. But, like, what I wasn't expecting is, like, I got in seminary, like, um, what we would call a worldview, right? A, a lens, glasses through which to see all issues and all, all um, you know... Various, uh, a variety of, of social and political and everything else issues. And so that's kind of what we're gonna do. Like, if you wanna talk about those individual topics, we'd love to talk about it. Uh, we didn't feel like this would be the best venue now that we knew we were gonna be, you know, at somebody else's place uh, with them working here. We just thought, you know, maybe we should have our family conversations in, our, in, uh, in a more private setting. Uh, but we really wanted to go towards this. Like, what is the big picture? What is the big story of the scriptures? That allows you to see how to address individual topics. Does that make sense? All right. So what I want to start with tonight is uh, session one, which is the Bible as a grand story, which is has hopefully that I'll convince you by the end of the night that is really, really, really important to see it as an overarching. It's telling one story from Genesis to Revelation, which again is really hard to pick up on sometimes when you're like, what in the world does Leviticus have to do with Acts and you know whatever else. Um, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So, first thing is the illustration of the fox and the crow. Actually, first thing, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for uh, this night. We're thankful for this beautiful day. Um, thank you for the beautiful world that you've made. Thank you uh, for good food and drink and for a place like this restaurant that's, uh, that's lovely and for their hospitality and having us. And uh, thank you for your church that we can gather on a Wednesday night after whatever day we've had, either uh, good or bad, joyful or, or, or sorrowful or challenging, uh, we can come to you as we are. We can come to each other as we are. And, um, and every, every time we gather is an opportunity to, to commune with you and with each other and to grow in our love for you and for each other. So be with us now. Especially help us by your Holy Spirit to understand what your Bible, your word, uh, your story is all about. And I pray that it would, not only we would understand it, but we would uh, do it. Not just be hearers of the words, but doers of the word as well. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Alright, Fox and the Crow. Somebody tell me your story. Who's willing to reveal their creative craftsmanship? Oh yes, Sophie. What's the moral of the story? Treat others the way you want others to be treated. That's very good. Well done, Sophie. Let's give a hand for that. Anybody else? What'd you come up with? I volunteer Benjamin. Benjamin, you've been volunteered. What do you got? (laughs) <laughs> oh man we, I, we, should, we can psychoanalyze that That'd be great Don't trust anyone That's the moral of the story Anybody else? One more? Oh, sure. Yeah So the next part is um, The crow sings a song And the fox says Oh my grandmother Always used to sing to me So this makes me so happy And the moral is You never know how Your talents or skills Good or bad um, Can uplift or impact Another person that's awesome. You guys are super creative. That's, that's way better than anything I would have come up with. Um, well, let me tell you what the story actually is, okay? This is, uh, what's that? Aesop's version. Yeah, that's right. By the way, all, the, all everything we're doing is based upon this book called The Drama of Scripture. Um, there's the picture of it right there. Um, so, almost all, all these quotes and stuff is based upon this book. So, here's the actual The authoritative, the the from on high version, interpretation of the story. The crow sits perched high in a tree with a piece of meat. Did you see anything in his beak? Yeah. Uh, Sits high perched in a tree with a piece of meat. There's a famine in the forest, and all the animals use different strategies in in an attempt to get the meat. The fox compliments the crow. It opens its mouth. The meat falls out. And the fox runs away with it. Moral of the story, don't be deceived by flattery. I think you were much on it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> don't trust anyone, in other words. <laughs> that's right. Now for you to understand what was happening in this one little scene uh, that is put before you, what did you what did you need to know? I needed a not black and white. he needed a not black and white copy to know something's in the beak of his mouth yes context right you can't tell from this little uh you know this little tiny black and white picture that there's a famine in the forest and you don't know that people are scrounging to try to find food and you don't know that the fox uh amongst all the other animals that are using all sorts of skills that they have uh to acquire food was you know flattering the crow so that he dropped the meat and he could take it from him but you needed to know those things to know what was going on in this story right obviously that's kind of a setup to what we want to talk about tonight which is the bible is a grand story lots of times we come to little individual pieces of the bible like this little picture and we try to figure out what's going on there right but if it's, if it's disconnected from the bigger story, if it's disconnected from the context, then we can come up with some really great stories, right? All these were really great stories, but they were all wrong. <laughs> like, great stories, but they were inaccurate because you didn't know the context. And so that's what we typically sometimes can do with the Bible, right? We can take a little piece of it. We can take this little scene, this little vignette. And if it's not, if it's not anchored into a broader story and context, then, then we may not fully understand what's happening. Does that make sense? So let's understand this challenge uh, together tonight, which is the the challenge of trying to understand the scriptures as a grand, comprehensive story. The challenge is we often live with fragmented Bibles, which I'm saying creates fragmented people. (laughs) So here's a quote from, uh, from the opening chapters of the drama of scripture. The Bible is a unified and progressively unfolding drama of God's actions in history for the salvation of the whole world. The Bible is not a mere jumble of history, poetry, lessons in morality and theology, comforting promises, guiding principles and commands. Instead, it is fundamentally coherent. Every part of the Bible, each event, book, character, command, prophecy, and poem must be understood in the context of the one storyline. Most of us have read the Bible as if it were merely merely a mosaic of little bits. Theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. Does that make sense? Most of you learned to approach the Bible that way, right? I think one of the first things I got was like God's promises for whatever else, and it's like just little individual verses Picked out of various places, which are great. I mean, whatever. It's good for kids and whatever else. But we learn to, like, approach the Bible in this sort of fragmented way. It's like, oh, I I just need a comforting verse. I'll go find it. Oh, I just need... I want to know the question to this theological... Or an answer to this theological question. I go and find it. You know what I mean? Like, we treat it like this little hodgepodge where we just go and grab what we need at the time, but lots of times it's really disconnected from the overall story and therefore it's not shaping our lives according to the big story of the Bible like it should. If that makes sense? So I, this is not like rocket science. It's like it's basically applying to the Bible how we live our lives as a whole. Like how do you, how do you get to know anybody? How do, you, how do you get to have a meaningful relationship with anyone in your life? you get to know their their big story, right? You get to know the context of their life. Uh, Every, every, especially a a significant relationship, has that moment, right? Uh, It may not be one moment in time, it may be several moments, but you have that moment where you, like, share, like the breadth of your life like here's here's the things that have shaped me the relationships the people I remember when, when April and I were uh, our our moment was in uh, in the Perkins restaurant uh, which is the only thing in Jefferson City Tennessee uh, where we went to where we went to college and we went to Perkins one night to study uh, and and we ended up talking for hours and that's when we like like, if I wanna know this person, I can't just know the person sitting right in front of me. Like I need to know the breadth of her life. And so she shared with me that she was from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they made the atomic bomb, and she probably has radiation poisoning and she glows at night sometimes. And and uh and do you remember this? You gave me your middle initial and I guessed it on the first on the first try. It was amazing. Her you try it. Her middle initial is L. What's her middle name? Lynn. Lynn. Lynn it's amazing. I thought I was special, but you just did it too. uh moral of that story my wife could have been. I know. I know. Uh, anyway, like even even in, even in just one setting, like I got to know so much about who April is, where she's from, what's important to her. Got to hear about her how her brother almost died in a car accident, and that's partly why an already close family is even closer and likes checking out and caring for each other i got to hear about her uh cousin named andy who has down syndrome which gave her this desire to serve in special education which she still does to this day it's like you know just in that one conversation you get the context of like who she is uh so we we do this with our relationships and so if we want to do this with god if we want to understand who he is then we got to get to know his full story right we got to get to know the whole context of, of the story he's given us. And it'll also save us from these... Anybody had this these experiences of figuring out a verse that you thought you knew what it means? You were taking it completely out of context? You ever had that experience? That's embarrassing, isn't it? I hate it. It's like, for me, one of those was uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's the one where if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they'll call out to me and then I will heal and I will heal their land. And I was like... That's about America, and <laughs> turns out it's not. It's not at all. Uh, But you know, that was the little, that was a little, the little uh, devotional bit I was given, and we have all story. We all have stories, right? There, like a, a Bible verse taking out of context, because we disconnected it from the broader story. Um, the, and there's a foundational principle underneath this that we're again. It's how our lives work, and we're just applying it to the Bible as well, which is that we are story-formed people. Um, God made us this way, I think. I think that's why he gave us the Bible in the form of a story. He could have given it to us in the form of, like, you know, a catechism or whatever else, but he gave it to us in the form of a story because he knows that we are fundamentally shaped by stories. Uh, some story has gotten a hold of our lives, and it and it directs how we think and feel and act and everything else. Uh, one of the quotes coming out, Uh, underneath that, we are story-formed people. All human communities live out of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history and gives shape and direction to their lives. Now listen to this. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of the secular Western world, if, as believers, we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thought and action, then our lives will manifest not the truth of Scripture, but the lies of the idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshippers. <laughs> there's some strong language in there, right, that... We live in a, uh, an idolatrous culture. And, but what they're saying is there are other stories, right? There are competing stories in the world. And if we don't know our story, if our story just gets a little fragmented and chopped up in these little bits, it's going to easily get subsumed into some other story, right? And now the Bible serves that story. It serves that end rather than serving the ends for which God gave us the story to begin with. Does that make sense? This is, that's, but That last line is particularly concerning, right? basically saying you could be uh, theologically orthodox, you could have decent theology, you could be morally upright, you could be a, you know, a moral person, you could be pious, you could be faithful and committed to your religion and yet be an idol worshiper. You'd be pursuing an idol. What is an idol? An idol is simply anything that we're living our life for, what, what you're really living for. And if it's not God, it's called an idol. And so it's possible that if we don't know our story, it gets, it gets absorbed, soaked up into a different story. And so now we got God, but it's like mixed with this other story. And we have God, but we're taking him towards different ends than the one he intended by his own story. Um, and in, in a minute, in one of the questions, when you talk amongst, your, amongst yourselves at your table, I want you to analyze, like, how have you seen that happen? How have you seen the Bible just absorbed into some other story? Um, there's lots of examples but I'll let you figure that out once you once you get there. All right, so you see where we're going. A fragmented Bible creates fragmented people because we live in a world of stories, and we're shaped by some story. And if, if we don't know our story, it'll get absorbed into some other bigger story. And then the bigger question is, is there even a grand story that helps us understand the world as a whole and, and then help us find our place in it? Uh, As they ask it in the book, are we left with our own personal stories to make sense of our lives? Or is there a true story that is bigger than all of us through which we can understand the world and find meaning for our lives? Are our personal stories apart or together part of a more comprehensive story? Now, this is where I want to do a little bit of cultural digging into the world that we live and So don't, don't glaze over when I start talking about mimesis and poesis and you're like, what in the heck are we talking about? But it's, it's try, I'm trying to help us understand why, why it's so difficult in our world today uh, to believe that there's one true authoritative story that gives meaning to everything else. Right, that's, that's a hard concept, right? Because there's lots of stories. How do we know which one's true? How do we know that the Christian one is true? And just our general uh, reticence to any sort of one big authoritative story that should define our existence. So to help us understand that, one is to acknowledge that you are living a part of some story, whether you know it or not, right? To be a human is to be captivated by some story. And so whether you're conscious of it or not, you're living according to a story, and Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher, uh, one of the best to really help us understand what it means to live in our times, he wrote a book called A Secular Age, which is really trying to help us understand why 500 years ago, religion was the default of everybody else, and 500 years later, it's not, right? Religion is no longer the default. And so he's trying to help us understand like, what happened, what shifts happened. And Charles Taylor is really difficult to understand. That's why lots of people have tried to interpret him. <laughs> and I will do my best tonight. But uh, one of the things he talks about is Charles Taylor talks about we have what he calls a social imaginary. So let me read the quote and I'll explain what that means. A social imaginary is a somewhat amorphous concept precisely because it refers to the myriad beliefs, practices, normative expectations, and even implicit assumptions that members of a society share and that shape daily lives. It is not so much a conscious philosophy of life as a set of intuitions and practices. In sum, the social imaginary is the way people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, imagine it to be, how they act intuitively in relation to it. Another thing he says, the social imaginary is intuitive social taste. So basically saying we, we, we're living a part of a story and we have a worldview that may not be necessarily shaped because we sat down and read philosophy books or theology books, but because we just picked it up from like the social air around us of what's acceptable and what's not. So like one example would be, uh, w- would you agree with this statement? It is better to be one's true inner self rather than conforming to models imposed on us from the outside. Most of us would probably say, yeah, be yourself, be you, right? But why did you come to that opinion? Did, 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 have any of you read like eight late 18th century romantic philosophers like Rousseau and Kant? Yeah, but well, that's what they said. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they said, and you don't have to read those people, but now that's like part of the air that we breathe. It's part of the, the social imaginary. Yes, you should be yourself. We've, we've agreed as, a, as, as part of like intuitive social taste uh, of what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's not, right? So that's part of, what's, part of understanding uh, our reticence to big picture stories is we're just, we're just kind of a, this amorphous story that's floating around us that we're just picking up that that we're all agreeing upon this is good this is bad this is right this is wrong make sense another thing that uh basically charles taylor saying we're all living what a lot of these philosophers taught even though we didn't read these philosophers like we we, we believe we're, we're we're intuiting a lot of what freud and nietzsche and some of these romantic philosophers but the, we never read these things but they just became so much a part of our culture that we absorbed it right Charles Taylor also talks about this thing called mimesis versus poiesis. Again, don't glaze over. Uh, I think I promise you it'll make sense. So it's a mimetic view of the world versus versus a poietic view of the world. So, by the way, this comes from a different book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. So he says, uh, A mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus, sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So, somebody's saying a mimetic view of the world says the, the world has intrinsic meaning. And your job is to like find that meaning and then conform your life to that meaning. So if the world has intrinsic meaning, then it has intrinsic authority, right and you have to you have to discover what that meaning is and then bring your life underneath it. A poetic view in the other, in the other way says, no, there's no inherent meaning. meaning is what you create of it. and so the world is just a bunch of raw materials, and you take it and you make of it what you want it to be, and you sort of create your own identity It's like intrinsic meaning versus created meaning. And this is where Charles Taylor talks about what we've arrived at is called the expressive individual. Every one of us is uh, an individual self, um, kind of disconnected from uh, communal responsibilities. And then we just kind of take stock of the raw materials of the world. And then we create our own, we put our own meaning onto it. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's like basically seeing the world as like an objective authority of like the world has meaning in and of itself because the, because a creator made it and he made us. And so there's some sort of objective authority in the world versus it's totally subjective. Everything's just a sub- subjective meaning. You find your way, you create your own story. Um, by the way, this is aided deeply by technological advancements. So <laughs> that's, that's partly how we became a, a poetic view of the world is because we have so much technology now that we feel like we're gods, like we can manipulate things. Uh, and in the book, uh, Carl Truman talks about the way farming has changed. Used to, used to be you were at the mercy of weather. right? You planted certain seasons, you reaped in certain seasons, and you were at the mercy of how the world worked. And now because of technology, because of irrigation, because of all this stuff, you can do it whenever you want to, right? You plant, you reap whenever you want to. And so it's that's kind of like a, a walking metaphor for how we've, how we've changed as human beings right our uh, our technological advances have given us the illusion that that we are the authority and we can sort of make make it up right we can create our own story um another jumping from charles taylor to a guy named philip reef he's an american uh sociologist he was a professor at penn um and he, by the way, this is helping us understand what's a part of our social imaginary, right? What what are the things we've all agreed upon, which is one of these things, is that we live in a in a poetic world. We get to describe ascribe the meaning to it. Reeve says something um, different. He what he calls the psych- psychological man. And by the way, this is way way too simplistic to like explain the nuances of of human evolution. <laughs> uh, but it, I think it is so caveating that it really is way way too simple it's still really helpful to help us understand like how things have changed and leaning up to our to our day and age so uh reef says basically there was there's there's been four humans men and women he calls them the political man but it could be anybody so he says in the beginning uh one of the the way people found meaning for their life first was the political man so in contrast to the private man the political man uh which is what idiot means actually do you know that idiot means private like you're on your own so <laughs> the uh in contrast to the private man the political man is the one who finds his identity in the activities in which he engages in the public life of the polis so this is uh plato aristotle uh, all these guys true virtue true meaning in life is to orient yourself towards the city right to be engaged in the civic good is that fair benjamin <laughs> you know these things. He actually read Nicoma- Nicomachean Ethics, so that's um, that's yes. Um, but you see, that's that's how people got their sense of identity, right? And my relationship to the civic good. Then there was the religious man, someone who found his primary sense of self in his involvement in religious activities. Uh, everyone had their own his his or her own in, individual existence and profession, but above all. They were pilgrims who find their sense of identity in a communal context as they participate in a religiously motivated journey. This is the Middle Ages. This is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. This is, is, I mean, the Middle Ages is when they built big cathedrals and created the church calendar. Basically, they're saying your life, the meaning of your life uh, is to be lived out in the religious context in the realm of, of God and his community. Then came the economic man. Uh, the individual who finds his sense of self in his economic activity trade production the making of money this has been throughout, but it 's especially the early early twentieth century um, This is your grandfather 's uh, <laughs> If you asked your grandfather if he was satisfied with his job, you might not understand the question right The economic man was like, "I mean I like what i 'm doing, but i 'm providing for my family like I just get up and go to work so I can provide for my family like i that 's that's what I get my identity from. Satisfied with my job? I don't know. But, but, but I'm satisfied with what it achieves, right? So that was kind of the economic man. You are, you are what you do. You are your, your economic activity. And then what Philip Reeve says is we've, we've pivoted uh, here in the last um, 50 years or so to what he's calling the psychological man. So a type characterized not so much by finding identity in outward-directed activities, as was true for the previous types, but rather in the inward quest for personal psychological happiness. So notice, all of the above, the political man, the religious man, the economic man, found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. In the world of the psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self and is inwardly directed. Thus, the order is reversed— Outward institutions become, in effect, the servants of the individual and in her sense of well-being. So you're noticing that shift? The ways we found our identity in previous times were outward-oriented, right? Helping the city, helping the religious community, helping my family, helping the community Better through our work. You're saying what's turned is now we're, is turned towards the psychological self. And what's most important, those other things are important, but what's most important is my sense of self, and my sense of overall well-being. By the way, not all of this is bad, right? Yay, mental health! Like we're we're for that, but it's just kind of helping us understand how we see the dominant stories of our lives. And Reef gives some pretty interesting, um, some some pretty interesting anecdotes of of, of seeing how this has worked out in life. So one of the things he talks about how is how therapy has changed. Uh, I'm in therapy. I'm for therapy. He's saying therapy. I don't know, 50 years ago, was how to help you fit in better to society. Where he says, today therapy is how to help society fit to you, right? He's saying it's just changed. The, the psychological man has sort of uh, taken over. He also talks about, uh, maybe a little derogatorily, he talks about uh, school, education, as like the safe spaces now. It's like, whereas education used to be to... to to expose you to things that were to make you like, Ugh, I don't know what I believe about this. And now it's like, we just want to affirm what you already believe. Again, too broad, too simple, but he's noticing some of the shifts that have happening, happened in our culture towards the psychological person. All this is trying to help us understand what's happening with the social imaginary, this, this world that we're swimming in, right? Does this make sense? Like we, we are, we are the, the psychological man uh, trying to figure out what's best for me and trying to make our own meaning on the world. Uh, and it's not this intrinsic meaning that comes from God or any other authority. It's it's us trying to figure it out, right? So I'm saying that's before we even get into like the Bible as a comprehensive story, we gotta we got to figure out that we're swimming upstream, right? There are all these things against us that are not just like, I don't, you know, like, on the one, on the surface, it could be like, I don't know, is is Christianity like the one true story of the world? But part of it is like, because we're swimming in these waters, that say, of course not. There is no one true story. Like, you might be true for you, but it's not true for everybody else, and, and we got to figure that out. You know. So, just trying to acknowledge um, or or give some, uh, some some language, some wording, some philosophical understanding to like what's happening. In the world that we live in now of how we try to understand ourselves and the stories uh that we find all around us so now let's step into the bible as a comprehensive story let me see how i'm on time oh i'm good with that said how do we how do we learn to see the bible as telling one story So uh, from the drama of scripture, the authoritative source for the Christian story is the Bible itself. We know that it is one thing to confess the Bible to be the word of God, but often quite another thing to know how to read the Bible in a way that lets lets it influence the whole of our lives. There could easily be a gap between what we say we believe and how we live. If God has has deliberately given us the Bible in the shape of a story, then only as we attend to it as story and actively appropriate it as our story, will we feel the full impact of its authority and illumination in our lives? That's really important. It's saying God gave it to us as a story, and so if it's going to become, and we're already we're wired to to be to live according to some story, if we're going to live according to the story of the Bible, we got to know what it means, right? We we got to we got to know the big picture uh, of the story of what's going on. So how do you how do we begin? I don't know if anytime you've gotten interested in the Bible, there's lots of interesting ways. Some people go to the beginning, start reading in Genesis and it starts out good. And then it gets weird. Uh, I heard some people, somebody went to the end. Like, I just want to know how it ends. They read Revelation 21 and 22 and that'll freak you out. Lots of people start in the gospels. That's a great place to start. Um, Where do we start when we're talking about the big, the big story? Well, I want to, I want to encourage us to think about the main entrance into the Bible where we can kind of orient ourselves to, to the whole so think about maybe like a corn maze. If you've ever gone in a corn maze and you get lost, where do you, if you get lost, where you, you go back to the beginning to figure out how, how to, you know, to orient yourself to where you are. Same thing with the Bible. Where, where's, where's the entrance? So we can, anytime we get lost somewhere else, where can we come back to and find our orientation? I'm going to suggest like if, if, if the Bible is a building, uh, it, ha- it has double doors through which we enter into it. And those double doors are kingdom and covenant. Kingdom and covenant. There's like the way into the, the big story of the Bible. What do I mean? The grand story of the Bible is the story of the kingdom of God coming to earth. Again, there's lots of ways that people have summed up the big story of the Bible. I think this is the one that's most faithful to how God revealed himself. All the language in Genesis and Exodus, God is using the language, especially in the ancient Near East, of him as a king and us as his people. So he reveals himself as a king and then when you trace the whole story forward, you can see. But the Bible, the, the grand story the Bible is telling is the story of the kingdom of God coming to earth. That's why God taught us to pray, or Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's a good starting point. If someone's ask you, what is, what's the story of the Bible? You can say it's the story of the, of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's how, how God has revealed himself, that he is a king and we are his people. And his goal is to get the kingdom of heaven to earth. To bring the will of God to be done on earth just like it is in heaven. You see this uh, in Mark when we preach through Mark. uh, I know you guys vividly remember this, it was such a great sermon. But uh, (laughs) Mark 1 talks about this is exactly what Jesus said when he showed up. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. So these double doors, right? Kingdom is the big story God is wanting to, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and covenant is that other door because covenant is particularly about the special relationship that God makes with his people as he works out his plans in history so his big idea is we're going to bring the kingdom of God to earth And how's that going to happen? through covenants through these special relationships with, with people um, throughout, throughout the scriptures and now with us in Christ so again it's a daunting thing to try to understand the Bible as a whole. Where do we start? With these double doors, kingdom and covenant. And when you hold, uh, when you hold these two things together, you can start to grasp the big picture, the big story of the scripture. Um, these guys say, Both alert us to God as the great king over all, who wants to have a people living under his reign and spreading the fragrance of his presence all over his creation. Both alert us to the fact that this has always been God's plan from the beginning, but the things went, went horribly wrong or badly wrong. Now God is doing remedial work to restore his project and pursue his original and persistent intentions. This is always God's plan. To bring, remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he always had a plan for these two things to merge together. But because of our sin, that all got thrown out. And then he's been working this elaborate and beautiful plan and story to bring them back together um, in Christ. So that's where we start, to orient ourselves to the whole. Kingdom and Covenant. Okay. Next, now let's see how that that large story plays out uh, throughout the whole story. So, first of all, if you just take the structure of a story, so this originated from the dramatist Terence. I like to think he called himself that back in the second century BC. I'm the dramatist Terence, but he was he was the first one, so they say in history, to start creating five act plays, right? And that's become kind of the foundation of how we understand story ever since. Act one gives essential background information, introduces the, the important characters, establishes a situation that will be disrupted by the events that are about to unfold. Okay, by the way, this happens in movies, books, our own stories, right? This is how sometimes postmodern, uh, in modern times, sometimes we arrange, rearrange the order. But basically, this is always how we tell a story. Act 2, the first action begins, usually with the introduction of a significant conflict. Act 3, where the main action of the drama takes place, the initial conflict intensifies and grows ever more complicated until Act 4, the climax, or the point of highest tension, after which the conflict must be resolved one way or another. Act 5 is the resolution, in which the implications of the climactic act are worked out for all of the characters of the drama, and stability is restored. So, if we take the structure of a story and we apply it to the Bible, then it looks like this. Act one gives essential information about God, humanity, and the world, it describes a stable situation, a very good creation, the human actors begin their work in the garden and history begins. Act two, the conflict is introduced as we encounter a mysterious enemy to God's plan. Here the fundamental problem in our world has its origin. Act 3, the conflict between human sin and God's good purposes for the creation intensifies and complications arise, to say the least. Uh, Act 4, the story of how the history of God's gracious dealings with his rebellious creatures comes to a climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Act 5, we see the implications of Christ's great act of redemption worked out in the lives of his community. And then, interestingly, the Christian story adds in Act 6, because there's... There's a chapter yet to come, right? We have God's own tremendous promise that his grand, per- grand purpose for his creation is ongoing and not yet finished in our world. There is much more to come in God's story. He has prepared another act, which is yet to be revealed, an act unlike anything we have seen or imagined thus far, and upon which the curtain of history will never close. All right? So if we, if we take what we understand stories to be, we apply it, see the scriptures through the lens, now here's an outline of the Bible as a whole, which will be actually also the outline of our sessions together. So Act 1, if you're in the big picture, the kingdom, right? The big story is the coming of the kingdom of God. Act 1, it's God establishing his kingdom. This is creation. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Act 2, rebellion in the kingdom. Um, uh, this is the fall. This is Genesis 3 to 11 particularly, but obviously influences the rest of the Bible Act 3, here comes Israel. uh, Redemption initiated by the king choosing a people, Israel, uh, for the purposes of through them he's going to bless the whole world. This is Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament. Pretty large swath. uh, But Act 3 can be broken up in two scenes. Scene 1 is getting a people for the king, and scene 2 is getting a land for his people. And the whole drama in the rest of the Old Testament is the people struggling to be the people of God and therefore to keep their promised land uh, without. Because he promised, if you rebel against me, I'm going to kick you out of your land. So there's the exile and all that. So it's a lot going into to Act Three, but but in the big picture, we see it, right? He established a king, uh, his kingdom. There was rebellion in the kingdom. Now he's beginning to redeem it, and he redeems it by choosing a people through whom he's going to bless the world. Then there's the interlude. You can go out and get snacks, you know, in the in the lobby. But in the interlude, it's a kingdom story waiting for an ending. The inter, inter, intertestamental period. Act 4 is the coming of the king. Redemption is accomplished. This is the Gospels, uh, the climax when Jesus comes and takes on, actually, Israel's vocation um, and fulfills what her original intention was. Act 5 is the spreading the news of the king. This is the mission of the church. This is Acts to the end of the New Testament. And there's two scenes in that as the Gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome and then scene 2 from Rome into all the the world. By the way, that's where we are. We're in Act 5, scene 2 in the world. Right? <laughs> um, and then Acts 6 to come is the return of the king. Redemption completed. And this is hinted to us in Revelation 21. So, big picture. Coming of the kingdom of God through six acts. So our schedule, what we're going to do tonight was the Bible as a grand story. Trying to trying to understand it as a big uh, holistic thing and why that's so important to not let it get chopped up. Uh, June 23rd, we'll do Acts 1 and 2, creation and fall. Um... July 14th we'll do Act 3 because it's so long uh, July 28th we'll do the interlude the, the, the years between the testaments and then Act 4 the coming of Jesus August 11th through Act 5 and 6 uh, and then se- session 6 we'll say alright now what does this mean <laughs> how, do you, how, how does knowing the big story matter how do I actually read and practice my Bible like how do I put this into actual practice in my life our goal, friends, is to understand the Bible, <laughs> which is what we talked about, right? It's what the survey said. We want to understand the true nature of Scripture as it is. It is God's story. It's the true story of the world. But only when you can understand it for what it is can it become actually the foundation for your life. It can become the big story that's guiding every other story in your life. Um, you can read this book if you want. You don't have to. I'm going to summarize it for you pretty extensively, as you can see. Um, but if you want to read along, it's it's. Uh, I, I find it fairly readable and approachable. All right. Hey, not bad. Take take 15 minutes around your table and pick one, two, a couple of these questions to interact with. Um, to, like, kind of take down everything I just said. You can ask again what what the heck was mimesis and Poesis was, but just to kind of work through these questions, uh, and then after about 15 minutes, we'll come together and have group Q and A, or let you hear let you report back from your groups kind of what was said, what was helpful, all that stuff. okay. Group up? Yes.